We are starting the show, though, talking about another violent encounter that took place on a transit bus. This happened this past Wednesday, and it happened in West Vancouver. Joining me to talk more about this is Cornell Nagu, president Nagu, president of the ATU Local 134. Thank you so much, Cornell, for joining us to talk more about this today. Uh, hi, good afternoon. Thank you very much for uh, reaching out to me. Well, it sounds like this was a very frightening situation, both uh, for uh, the driver as well as other residents, uh, passengers on that bus. Can you tell us what unfolded on this bus on Wednesday? Uh, from uh, what I heard so far from um, the driver involved on the incident, uh, it was a fight uh, who started between two passengers, and uh, it didn't last too long until uh, fights uh, and uh, um, wrestling around uh, started. Uh, fortunately, the West Vancouver Police Department show up uh, pretty fast at the scene, and they managed to arrest uh, the um, aggressor. However, what's very disturbing from the point of the union is that uh, no one took care of the driver. Um, I'm very concerned. I just read on the news recently that the employer, the West Vancouver District, is stating that all the necessary steps and protocols <coughs> have been taken. And uh, I just want to translate that for the audience. Those protocols and necessary steps has been one single question. Are you okay? Hmm. That's it. Nothing else. We had two diffusers on the premises at work ready to go and uh, talk to the driver and, uh, you know, uh, make sure that he's safe to drive the bus, but uh, no one bothered to, to do anything. And uh, if those are the necessary steps, and protocols, the West Vancouver District uh, things are uh, necessary, then uh, we have to change that. And I already requested the emergency meeting with uh, the mayor of West Vancouver, Mark Seger, and um, city manager, Robert Bartlett. And uh, currently I'm waiting for an answer. Uh, and I mean that that is uh, 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 quite disturbing that that nobody took the time to ask the driver if he was okay. I understand too uh, when you talk about this being a fight between two passengers, and this is while the bus was in motion. And this was more than uh, say uh, just uh, not that there's such a, a thing perhaps as an average fist fight, but this was more than a heated argument or a fight. In that there was bloodshed. From what I understand, there was a lot of blood on that bus. Uh, apparently, yeah, the bus was uh, taken off the road uh, and uh, has been professionally cleaned up uh, to remove all the uh, blood stains. I understand as well, and you touched on this. So it was another passenger then that intervened and tried to stop what started as verbal assaults. And that's what led again to this fight where there was blood that was shed uh, on the bus. Uh, the, the suspect was then subdued on the bus, was arrested when that bus came to a stop. What is the protocol in that scenario? If a driver realizes uh, that this is happening, a fight has broken out on the bus, is there a protocol or what is a driver's? supposed to do in that scenario? 
you know the 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 priority for the driver is first of all his own safety because if the driver is not safe uh, no one on the bus is safe so uh, um, in situations like that the driver has to stop the bus immediately on a very safe uh, location and um, either uh, press the emergency panic button in the case we just talk about my understanding is that the bus driver used his cell phone and uh, requested help through the dispatchers at our transit center okay uh, you mentioned the the emergency panic button and i understand as well when we're looking at the blue bus fleet to the west vancouver the the blue bus fleet that some of the buses have protective gra- uh, glass around the driver uh, was do you know if this bus had that uh, yeah, uh, I think that bus was with the protective glass, but uh, I'm pretty happy that you touched that subject because uh, uh, almost half of our buses uh, are without a protective barrier, and uh, we have basically a curtain shower, like a plastic uh, sheet, uh, just uh, covering that uh, um small distance between the driver and uh, uh, anyone getting in the bus. That's the protection we get. And it's, uh, it's ridiculous. Right. So is I there... Don't know who's, who, who, who can feel safe doing that? I, sure. I don't know, especially with this new wave of violence. Well, and I know in the past there has been some reluctance from drivers to be behind protective glass. I think maybe that changed a bit during the pandemic. But would you like to see then all of the blue buses have the protective glass so drivers are behind that? Absolutely. It's not I would like to. I think it's a must to have. Right. And so is there a move to to make that happen or how do you make that happen? Uh, the only way we can do it is just to push uh, and ask for to our employer, but uh, uh, I think a more uh, complete answer you can get from West Vancouver District, which is the employer of uh, Blue Bus Transit. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's for the union, it's a, a constant uh, uh, fight and struggle with our employer to recognize that we are frontline workers. And our job, it's, uh, it's a very stressful and uh, uh, seems like dangerous as well. Right. And why is it that only half the buses have the protective glass? Uh, I suggested to ask the was Okay. Okay. No, we can do that for sure. Uh, how is the driver doing? Uh, the driver is fine. He's okay. But uh, as I said, he was uh, a bit upset as well that uh, no one... Uh, was concerned about uh, his uh, well-being. The only person who asked him how he's feeling and he's uh, okay was a police officer from West Vancouver. Hmm. Has he been driving with the blue bus for a, a, a good length of time, or how long has he been doing this? Uh, he's a recent uh, employee, maybe one year. Okay. And, and have you noticed, you mentioned this as well, and, and I think, too, we have been talking about this, obviously, because there have been several violent incidents on transit buses. There was another one in Vancouver this morning. But have, has, have your drivers noticed an increase in uh, perhaps people who are agitated or, or heated exchanges or fights on buses? Yes, there is a definitely an increase of violence in the recent uh, weeks. And, and we can we can clearly see that. 
and and violence in that similar to to this. I mean, this was a pretty I, again uh, to have so much blood in a bus that it's taken out of service uh, because it has to be cleaned and dealt with. Uh, is that an extreme case, or are you seeing a lot of fights? Uh, no, it's an extreme case for West Vancouver. We uh, it's first time I see something like this in ten, fifteen years of service with West Vancouver. Okay. And so aside from pushing then for more protection for drivers, uh, you mentioned the emergency button. Do they have an emergency call button or, or is it that drivers do need to use their cell phones if they need to call for help? Uh, no, we have the protocol. We have an emergency button. But uh, for example, uh, for West Vancouver Transit after 12 midnight, we have no dispatchers on duty. So uh, it's it's also uh, dangerous for that uh, time frame. Uh, and we ask for a very long time to have uh, someone on duty to to help the drivers, but uh, nothing happened for years. Hmm. So if there's no dispatchers, then do, do the calls go through no. TransLink or where do they go? Go, go, go to TransLink, yeah. Okay. And the TransLink is uh, um, going through the emergency um, All right. All right, well... I thank you so much, Cornell, for joining us and talking more about this because we are going to continue talking about these incidents as well. So thank you so much for your time and for being on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. Well, today marks seven years since British Columbia declared a public health emergency on the toxic drug crisis. And since that declaration, more than 11,000 people in B.C. have died from overdoses, including almost 2,300 lives lost last year alone. Well, joining me now is Leslie McBain, a co-founder with the group Moms Stop the Harm. Leslie, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thank you for thank you for asking me. Well, I wish we were talking about improvements or talking about things that were working and going in the other direction. But unfortunately, uh, we've got the numbers from BC Emergency Health Services as well that March, I think it was, that has, has set the record for the most overdose calls in a day. And the numbers just keep going up. What are your thoughts on the fact that that's what we're looking at on this day, seven days since the emergency was declared well i know that nothing substantial has changed in those seven years that would save the lives of people who use drugs or save them from uh toxic drug poisonings as we call them uh, and save them from being in the er with some really serious health concerns so because nothing has changed we are not surprised we're devastated it's it's so horrible, but um, the government has not made steps to uh, find the actual solution. We know the solution to this, uh, to the number of deaths, the number of toxic poisonings, um, but the government seems hesitant to act on that. And what would you say? What is the solution? Well, the solution to stop the deaths today or tomorrow would be for the government and that both federal and provincial governments to implement a safer supply of drugs for people who are dependent. Um, And that means pharmaceutical grade drugs um, given out by doctors, by clinics, by health authorities, by uh, pharmacists to people who need them. Safe drugs will stop the deaths. 
and it won't happen on a dime. It's, it's, it's a process. But so far, we have not seen that. Um, and nobody can recover if they aren't alive. I mean, we, we say that all the time. Mm. And, and does it does it go as part of a, a bigger initiative, though? And I get what you're saying, that, that if somebody has a safe supply, then they're not mm. going to die of a, of a toxic drug poisoning. That's not going to happen. D- does that become part of a bigger, a bigger initiative, though, as far as treatment and as far as helping somebody not have a dependence on drugs? Absolutely. Uh, what, what the uh, research shows is that people, when given a safer supply, a regulated safer supply that's accessible to them, uh, their lives stabilize, their health improves, and they're actually able to make decisions to, um, if they wish, to go into treatment, if the treatment is available. We're still waiting for that ramp up of treatment facilities and, and uh, counseling and all the things that go with that. So the infrastructure is just not in place yet. So we concentrate, and I say we as Mom Stop the Harm, on advocating for a safer supply so that our loved ones can, you know, be alive until they can get into treatment. And Leslie, I know that that you were involved or you became involved in this because you lost your son and uh, you've spoken very publicly about what uh, must, uh, what can only be the, the worst thing to have happened to somebody. Uh, I know you lost your son back in, in 2014. Would that have helped though? Do you think, would that have made a difference? No, not for my son. Uh, his case is somewhat different. He was prescribed um, a several different drugs by different doctors uh, over the course of a week or so, and uh, they were all pharmaceutical grade. But he took the wrong combination one day, and that's what stopped his heart. So it was not toxic drug poisoning that we're dealing with today, but um, certainly his death, which you know changed my life, is what prompted me to find two other women who were similarly uh, in grief to start Mom Stop the Harm. So... Yeah, we things have changed since 2014. They've gotten much worse. And did you ever anticipate that after starting this group, after going through what, like you said, losing your son, having your life changed forever, going through that, did you ever anticipate that here we would be in 2023 still talking about these numbers? No, I didn't. I mean, I thought the work that we were doing, we and other advocates and also professionals, health professionals and researchers, all the work we were doing would change, you know, sort of turn the Titanic. So where we would have um, more supports for people who use drugs for a better understanding for the public to better understand what addiction is and what it looks like and how it feels uh, so that, uh, you know, that public opinion is so important, but the public needs to be educated on, on what we're looking at here. So anyway, we've tried our best to do that. But yeah, I'm I'm stunned, actually, that, you know, all these seven years later, since public health emergency was declared, that we're we're in a worse place than we were before. Um, there's reasons for this. It's, it's a big dynamic. And like you say, it's a big picture. Is part of it as well, the, the idea of decriminalization, and certainly that's been put out there, uh, it's been touted by some as a good step. But if we have decriminalization without safe supply or without uh, those other uh, steps in place, does it really help? Decriminalization is a really good progressive step for BC. Um, it will not, however, stop the deaths. 
what it does is it stops um, people who possess small amounts of drugs for, from, from being involved in the criminal justice system. People who use drugs are not criminals. They are people who have a health concern. They are people who should be treated as such and given a safe supply. Decriminalization uh, is a really progressive step. We're the only province in Canada to have even this iteration of, of decriminalization. And we hope that it will broaden over the years. But uh, yeah, in and of itself, it does help with the stigma that people have around people who use drugs. Uh, and, you know, it's a good step, but it won't stop the deaths. Right. And and I think that's where, where some of the criticism comes in that if, if it's just one step and sure, like you say, it, it keeps people out of the criminal justice system, but it doesn't keep toxic drugs out of people. So it's not if it's not helping to keep people alive, to perhaps get them into treatment, then it, it does seem like it's kind of an outlier. It's not part of the bigger plan. Yeah, uh, it, it could be you can look at it that way. And uh, but the bigger plan is to have, like I say, to have the public start to understand. And, and that way we will see that, uh, you know, public or the policymakers will have maybe more will to issue a safer supply. Uh, decriminalization sends a message, uh, as I say, that, that people who use drugs aren't criminals. It is just a tiny amount, 2.5 grams, that people are allowed within the law now to, to possess. Uh, but it, it is a big step forward, and it, is a, it really says that the governments are listening to this crisis. Uh, the, the big solutions haven't, haven't happened yet, but um, I'm still hopeful. So what keeps you going doing this when we look at the numbers? And again, I think it was just last month, it was March, that BC actually mm-hmm. set the record for the most overdose calls in one day. Uh, how do you keep going and doing this when you look at those numbers, which, which must be discouraging? Well, they're discouraging, except for uh, we know why uh, those numbers are so high. It's because of the toxicity of the black market drugs. And the toxicity changes uh, from day to day, even from week to week, depending on what's going on out there. So we and we know the solution, as I say, is a safer supply. So that's what keeps us going. Uh, I think we're edging closer to that solution. But, um, you know, when... The first responders, and bless them, are, are responding to, to these poisonings. They're the ones who must get absolutely discouraged. I mean, I hate it. It's terrible. But at the same time, we have hope that, that things will change. People who use drugs who are dependent or addicted should have availability, the medicines that they need, as in any other health concern. All right, Leslie, we'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining the program. Appreciate it. Thank you. Well, earlier in the show, we were talking with Leslie McBain. She is one of the co-founders of the group Moms Stop the Harm, talking about the fact that today is seven years since BC declared a public health emergency on the toxic drug crisis. Well, we're going to talk more about that, as well as when it comes to the most vulnerable members of society and calling for help, but what they are being urged to do as well. Joining us now is Troy Clifford, the ambulance paramedic Union president, also an active paramedic. Troy, thank you so much for taking some time today. 
Thank you for having me on, Jill. Well, it's uh, unfortunately whenever we take a look at uh, anniversaries or, or dates since the public health emergency was declared, the numbers continue to go in the wrong direction. I was hoping to ask you about that or get your take on that and the, the impact that that has on paramedics being called to so many overdose-related calls. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, this definitely isn't a happy anniversary. We don't look forward to this every year and based on the trajectories we've seen is it's getting worse and uh, you know seven years ago um, you know it didn't start seven years ago but that's really when it really came to its peak and it was declared a public health emergency and you know we've been dealing with overdoses as paramedics and frontline health care and and public safety for many years but the changes that we've seen in the last years with the potency um, and the volume is just incredible and you know it's it's increasing every day we're seeing upwards of 100 calls a day across BC for overdoses and, uh, you know, upwards of eight, between seven and eight people dying every day. Paramedics are on every one of those calls. Um, and we're seeing things that we've never seen from a potency and the need clinically to treat these patients with uh, uh, Narcan or Naloxone. And, and it's not, uh, you know, because of what's being cut with it and it's not an opiate, it's really difficult to uh, treat these. I think you heard Brian talk about that earlier. Uh, you know, Brian and I have worked uh, about the same amount of time in this service and seen a lot of this stuff and it, it really is challenging but it really does impact the well-being of the responders paramedics and, and dispatchers for sure well and i'm glad you touched on that because we have talked so much about naloxone and the importance of naloxone being present and people being able to administer it but how does that or what does that do to a paramedic when you're responding to somebody and they're not responding to the naloxone yeah, it, you know, we're seeing it more and more. And I think the, 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 the stigma around addiction and mental health, which go hand in hand, uh, you know, it's not a downtown east side uh, isolated situation. This is in every corner in every community. And when you get there and people have uh, thought they've uh, used something or, you know, or seen it, figured it was going to be a simple, uh, you know, drug use and then it, and it turns out to be something more the impacts on the people around them and the pressures and and that is really hard to manage um and you know it's quite scary actually and um and when paramedics get there they're seeing this on a repetitive basis and it takes its toll on their well-being the psychological injury we see from this type of work is incredible and that's why we're the highest industry of 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 people off or with are uh, being treated for psychological injuries um that's really to and I would imagine, too, uh, that, that not only is that the, the impact of that, but uh, we hear cases as well in that uh, it's kind of uh, naloxone. I, I think it's becoming better understood now, but it was, you know, in the past it's been talked about as being kind of the miracle uh, response and the way of bringing people back. But, but we know now as well that people aren't always coming back the way they were and they're still suffering um, brain damage and they're suffering other, other uh, side effects of this and that's got to that's got to take a toll as well yeah i think that that's that's some of the stuff you know we we know the work we do is is challenging and not uh, easy at times but uh, there's definitely a toll when you see the repetitive impact and that things aren't getting better i think that's really the the moral injuries that uh, you know so we we got to stop um you know what we have it have been doing isn't working as a society and that's where i think that we advocate for uh, you know safe supplies and anything that will do that doesn't and you started out with uh, that will you know paramedics are there to help dispatchers are there to help and we don't want to be seen as uh, judging or doing anything that would deter somebody 
from calling for help in their time of need, whether that's in a resident, whether that's uh, with a friend, um, whether that's downtown east side. We don't judge where people's, uh, you know, demographics or where they come from or their current uh, um, situation is. I, I think we see everybody, and I think I speak for, I know I speak for every paramedic, that, uh, you know, we see everybody as a patient, and that's what we, and a family member, that's someone's loved one or a friend. And I think that's the focus we do, and that's what our message is to the, to regardless is in your time of need, call for help. We're there for you, and uh, I think that's really uh, the relationship we want to have with uh, with our patients and the public, and uh, and do all we can to get people if they are able to break that cycle, get the help they need. And speaking of that, some new numbers were put out earlier today, and this was from the city of Vancouver, talking specifically about the stretch of East Hastings where we've seen yeah. the tents being removed. Uh, and these these were Vancouver Fire and Rescue Service numbers, but but they were talking, saying that, that in the week of April 3rd to April 9th, there were 27 fewer overdose-related calls than the previous week, and 82 fewer than the two weeks earlier, uh, But which is good that there's not as many calls, but I'm curious your your thoughts on that, or what do paramedics do in scenarios where we are talking about people living in tents? We know there are still people that have gone just to different parts of the city, maybe different parks. Uh, what are some of the obstacles? Do people in tent encampments, do they call 911 and welcome paramedics? Yeah, so just regarding the numbers, I'm not sure where their numbers are coming from. BCS BCEHS, we haven't seen any spikes or decreases in numbers by, um, maybe they're talking about, I don't, I don't know where their number is, talking about just in a specific area, but overall we haven't seen any decreases in numbers um, or increases, uh, you know, that we'd see on, say, a, a payday or something like that. So our numbers are pretty consistent. Um, so I, I, that's what I've reported from BCHS, and, you know, it's been increasing on, a, on an increased basis. But um, we don't find that people are heard from calling when they're uh, with their friends and, and that. What we do worry about is if people are isolated or on their own and not uh, able to have somebody to call or that. That's a concerning thing. But, but um, we, we were very concerned, about, obviously, about the safety and uh, not only the responders, but the uh, the patients in those encampments, they, they definitely had challenges with that. And, uh, you know, it's well reported, the the uh, the unsafe uh, parts of it. But it's also about their safety, about their the patient safety. So um, have we seen a de- any drastic in- decrease in calls to uh, for overdoses or calls in the general area? And absolutely, because there's not a congregation of people in the same area, right? right? Right. But there's still there's still patients uh, that would call for help regardless of where they are living, um, and uh, you know there might be some uh, once we're able to look at the numbers going back we might be able to see a, a decrease. But uh, we're not seeing any drastic changes that, uh, that I'm reported. And how does it work? And this might seem like a really naive question, but how does it work when somebody is living in a tent somewhere, uh, whether it's in a park or on a street, if they don't have an actual address? How do you find them? You know, so that's interesting. We, you know, we've been dealing with this a long time, and it really changed when we 
we got cell phones. But uh, people, are, you know, our, our emergency medical call takers and dispatchers are very good at triaging and extracting information from people where they are. And we've dealt with this uh, for many years. And it's, it's, it's a little more challenging. But, uh, you know, you, you get uh, where was the, where's the sign. It, it's a little bit like when people are out on a highway and they're not sure where they are. You know, what was the last place you went through? Can you look up and see where the sign are? are you, and you can identify your landmarks. And, and they have, they're very good at those skill sets. That's what their, their expertise is. So people are generally good. And, you know, and you can, uh, you know, you can definitely find ways of doing it. So it does prove more challenging for the call takers than that. And you know, we always encourage people to know where they are and landmarks. But, you know, what hotel are you in front of or what uh, business are you in front of or near? Um, so then you can get there and make sure people are stay on the line and can uh, do that. And cell phones are very good for that and callbacks and that sort of stuff. Right. And and you kind of touched on this or mentioned the the safety for paramedics, for first responders as well, because, well, some people would be very inviting and need help and want help. But we've seen in, in some of these encampments and in some scenarios, uh, there are people that don't uh, enjoy yeah. or don't welcome others. And, and it can be a dangerous situation. How do paramedics deal with that? So we have a really... Uh uh, you know, obviously, responder safety is first priority. You're, no, you know, we have a saying: no, you're no good to anybody if you can't get to the patient. So, looking after your your own personal safety is priority, and that's our risk assessment. It starts right from the moment the uh, emergency medical call takers take a call. Um, what are the risks? And they do a you know a triage assessment, the risk assessment over the phone, and then the paramedics are also uh, responsible for providing that. Um, dashboard assessment we call it as you walk uh, as you drive up to a scene what are you seeing what do you think as you walk in so you know sometimes you're doing a what we call a, a doorway assessment uh, obviously not in a tent but uh, you know you're you're a ways away and asking what's going on is there anybody else in the tent um, you know and you're really assessing their their demeanor and uh, their approach and uh, and you know you don't want to rush in and any patient, you don't want to, because if they're having a medical condition or, you know, a mental health crisis, you've got to be really sensitive to that because uh, there are volatile situations and there are risky situations. So those are all areas that paramedics and, and responders are quite frankly safe. And obviously, if it's not safe, we would involve uh, our colleagues at Vancouver Police or any police department or public safety. All right. Troy, thank you so much, as always, for joining us. It was good to talk to you today. Okay. Thank you for having me on. Well, there is a lot of attention being paid to the Writers Guild of America, as well as the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. All are negotiating a new contract that's to replace one that expires on May 1st. And unless a deal is reached, it's believed that Hollywood scriptwriters could walk out. And that would create a huge problem, as well as a ripple effect when it comes to productions and productions right here in BC. Well, Amy Lang is joining us now, the president of North Shore and Mammoth Studios. Amy, thank you so much for being here. No, thanks so much for having me. Uh, how big of a deal is this, the, the idea that potentially Hollywood scriptwriters could walk out? Well, you know, uh, obviously the threat of labor disruptions is taken very seriously. And, you know, with so many employed in the sector and the industry being the size that it is now, it, it, it really is, um, you know, something that we are watching very closely. And what would it mean, do you think, for production here in B.C.? Well, I guess, it, it, you know, the production, there's definitely some hesitation to get productions going. They're waiting to see what's happening. Um, so what could it mean? Could it mean that 
they push their dates a little bit. They move around in terms of uh, their production schedule. Um, and, you know, we just kind of have to wait and see. Right. And and so are places then, or you're hearing or seeing that uh, that uh, places are shelving productions or, like you said, don't want to start them up if there's this potential or this, this looming threat of a strike? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the case. But there there's a lot of... Um, Let's just get ready to go once once they're once they're through the negotiations. So um, I think you know what BC can do is just be ready, and they're certainly doing that um, on a lot of fronts. Uh, and I know it, this made me kind of go far back into the archives because it sounded familiar. And I know there was the writer's strike, but it was back in 2007, 2008. Uh, I would imagine mm-hmm. a lot has changed though since then, as far as the amount of production and kind of BC's role. Oh, certainly. I mean, uh, I mean, the last five years was so busy that I think that the rearview mirror is quite small, and there's a lot of um, new labor force in in the film industry that have never been through this, and so I think that's kind of amplifying the fear. Um, and so, the, you know, the seasoned veterans have said, "Hey, don't worry about it. This is the way it used to be, and and this too shall pass, and we'll get through it, and we'll get back to production." But you know, when you get back to production, be ready to go because it does sound like the back half of the year could be really busy. Hmm. And and you mentioned kind of the the last five years have been so busy, and the, the film industry did seem to be one, although it it did wasn't unscathed through the pandemic. It did seem to be an industry that found ways to get back up and to ramp up production again. Uh, how was it as far as as making sure that that things were still being produced and made and working, even as we were dealing with that? Yeah, you, yeah, certainly not unscathed. <laughs> um, I don't think any industry was. Um, but it, I think it's a, a big nod to the BC industry that they were the first, uh, we were the first uh, production, production jurisdiction to actually get back to work um, during the pandemic. So we were in a better position from a public health standpoint. And so when, and, and they worked very hard to make sure that they put in the protocols in place to keep, you know, everybody working on the set safe and, and we're back up and running, which is, you know, got them the momentum to build into a $4.8 billion production volumes in the last, you know, 2021. Hmm. And are there other issues when it comes to filming in the industry in BC? I know in the past too, we've talked about the Canadian dollar and how that can make it really attractive for a, a lot of companies to come to this part of the country or this part of the continent. Are there other issues though with, with interest rates and other pressures on the industry? Well, certainly interest rates is is a key player. But, you know, Hollywood right now is also trying to figure out uh, their business model. So there's a lot of restructuring from the streaming perspective and what makes sense production volume-wise. So, you know, that's kind of all coming into play. Um, It's certainly becoming a more competitive landscape on the global front. So lots of other uh, nations are also wanting into the production business. Um, It's a great business to be in, and it employs a lot of um, workforce and across-the-board skills development and broad brushstrokes of who's it, who's in the production industry. So it's certainly an attractive industry from an um, economic perspective. Um, so, no, I mean, I guess, you know, the, the strike is not unique to BC and any of the other issues are still really kind of out of the control of our BC um, production. Right. And and I guess that's part of it, too, in that we've talked recently about the big announcement, the second season of the show, The Last of Us, which is proving to be very, very popular and, and these good yeah. news announcements of things in B.C. Uh, so I, I guess it's just kind of now waiting to see, like you said, it's it's out of the control of anybody here, but will have that big impact. 
No, exactly. Out of our control. And I, I think people should just be patient. And, you know, there will be more good news stories coming down. And, and BC is doing, you know, like all the labor unions are spending this time, you know, in a, a lull that they haven't had for the last, say, five years to actually focus on workforce development and collaborate and see, you know, how, how can BC expand their value proposition beyond, um, you know, certain elements that are outside of our control, like like the FX rate, you know. So, um, it, again, it's such a collaborative industry that they take these times to use it as an opportunity, which, you know, you don't always get and you kind of have to, you know, capitalize on that. I know some of the issues, too, uh, they're talking about uh, the use of artificial intelligence and really showing uh, how things have changed and how the industry has changed. Have you noticed that as well in that that, that there is, uh, I would think, too, with the, all of the streaming services, there must be, uh, there, well, there is so much more content, but also things changing when it comes to technology. Yeah, I, I don't think that's unique to the film and television industry, to be honest. I think that's, you know, just a product of 2023. And so everybody is figuring out how, how does technology change the workforce for the better? Um, and how do you utilize it to, you know, shorten production times? And, you know, there's no doubt about it. Uh, the studios are looking to figure out, you know, how can they make a certain X amount of series and, you know, 10%, 20% less in the budget. And, and they've got to, everybody's got to be creative. But I don't think that's to say that the the writers um, don't have a piece of that. There's such a collaborative aspect in this industry that I think everybody at the table, which sounds like they're still, you know, talking in, in, in a positive way, that that is just something that they need to discuss. Right. And uh, again, uh, so many people watching this and hoping that a deal is reached. What kind mm-hmm. of a ripple effect, though, do, would it have if the writers go out, go out on strike as far as other union members honoring that? Would it really bring things to a standstill, do you think? You know, I, I can't really comment because I myself haven't been through a, a strike in the industry. <laughs> and so, yeah, there's certainly a ripple effect. But I think, you know, the takeaway is, is they're, they're not there and, and they're still in negotiations and it sounds positive And, you know, you just keep an eye on it and hope it doesn't get to that. And if, if all things, let's say all things work out and a deal is reached and uh, things are going ahead, what are your thoughts on, on the future as far as jobs and things? Because it does seem like it's so busy in BC that, that it will continue to be be a fast-growing industry. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I think like what we're looking at is 2023 could could still feel as busy as 2022 just because, um, I mean, my business hat and my perspective is uh, BC is getting a lot of calls and stages are starting to get, you know, spoken for and because they do know that this does pass and then they have content they want to produce and, and LA loves BC and it's, you know, from what I hear, it's their number one choice outside of LA. And so I think, again, as leaders, we just want to focus on making sure that we continue to be their first choice outside of LA. All right. Well, we will continue uh, watching as many people are to see uh, what is happening with these negotiations. Amy, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me.